Harriet Martineau's account of the events at St. Peter's Field on the 16th of August 1819 was published 30 years after the event. Francis Bruton's account was published a 100 years after. Both carefully sifted the evidence that was to hand at the time of writing. More recent publications on the Peterloo Massacre correct Martineau and Bruton on certain points, but their accounts are nevertheless worth hearing. If Martineau is somewhat ambivalent on who was responsible for the deaths and woundings, her description of the scene is graphic. Bruton's is a more dispassionate account that clearly places the responsibility on the shoulders of the authorities. We will hear their accounts in full. First, Harriet's Martineau. The arrangements made by the authorities for the part they were to act are to be found authentically detailed in the communications addressed by themselves at the time to the government, which were afterwards laid before Parliament in the evidence given on the subsequent trial of Hunt and his associates at York, and most distinctly in a valuable and interesting narrative of the events of the day, furnished to the biographer of Lord Sidmouth by Sir William J. H. Jolliffe, Baronet, M.P., who, as a lieutenant of the 15th Hussars, was himself an actor in the scene he has described. A numerous committee of magistrates of the county had been constantly sitting since Saturday morning, taking depositions and considering what they should do. It seems to have been upon considerable hesitation that they resolved not to attempt to prevent the meeting, but to defer the execution of a warrant, which was issued for the arrest of the leaders, till the people had all assembled and the proceedings had commenced. The reasons for the adoption of this course are not explained. It is only stated that the committee contented themselves, till they saw what the complexion of the meeting might be, or what circumstances might arise, with coming to this determination only, which they adopted in concurrence with some of the most intelligent gentlemen of the town. About two hundred special constables had been sworn in, and the military force which they had at their command consisted of six troops of the 15th Hussars, which had been quartered in the cavalry barracks near the town for about six weeks, a troop of horse artillery, with two guns, nearly the whole of the 31st Regiment of Infantry, some companies of the 88th Regiment, the Cheshire Yeomanry, comprising between three and four hundred men, who only arrived on the morning of the 16th, and, lastly, a troop of Manchester Yeomanry, numbering about forty members, chiefly wealthy master manufacturers. The special constables and the Manchester Yeomanry the magistrates retained under their own immediate orders. The command of the rest of the force was taken by Colonel Guy Lestrange, of the 31st Regiment, as the senior officer, in the absence of Sir John Bing, now Earl of Strafford, the general of the district, who was at his headquarters at Pontefract, and to whom it would appear, among all the preparations that were made, no intimation had been sent of what was intended to be done or of the strong view that was taken of the seriousness of the emergency. Of course, however, the military could only act on being authorised or called upon by the civil power. Early in the forenoon of the 16th, the constables were posted, one portion of them close to the hustings in the centre of St. Peter's Field, the rest so as to maintain a communication from thence to a private house on the south side of that irregular square space of ground, to which the magistrates repaired about eleven o'clock from the Star Inn, where they had first assembled. The distance from this house to the hustings was stated on the trial at York 
to have been about three or four hundred yards, but it was probably not quite so much. The entire extent of St. Peter's Field, now all built over, was only between two and three acres. The military force was disposed as follows. Two squadrons of the 15th Hussars, having been marched into town about ten o'clock, were dismounted in a wide street to the north of St. Peter's Field, and at the distance of nearly a quarter of a mile from it. The Cheshire Yeomanry were formed on their left in the same street. Of the remaining troops of the Hussars, one was attached to the artillery, which took up a position between the cavalry barracks and the town, and the other remained in charge of the barracks. The Manchester Yeomanry were stationed in a street to the east of the field. The infantry were kept in readiness, but were not called upon to act till after the meeting had been dispersed. The whole work, as will presently appear, was done by the forty Manchester Yeomanry and the two squadrons, four troops, or three hundred and twenty men, of the 15th Hussars. The band which accompanied Hunt and his party on their approach played the national airs of Rule Britannia and God Save the King, during which, it is said, the people generally, or many of them at least, held their hats off. No time was then lost in proceeding to the business of the day. As soon as Hunt and his friends had mounted the hustings, the music ceased, upon which it was formally proposed that Mr. Hunt should take the chair. The motion, being seconded, was carried by acclamation, and the orator, advancing to the front of the stage, took off his white hat and addressed the now silent and listening multitude. He had only, however, uttered a few sentences when a confused murmur and pressure, beginning at one verge of the field and rapidly rolling onwards, brought him to a pause. The soldiers were upon the people. The account given by Mr. Hulton, the chairman of the bench of magistrates, when he was afterwards examined on the trial at York, was that, when after the meeting had assembled, the warrant for the apprehension of the reform leaders was given to Nadine, the chief constable, that person declared that he could not execute it without military aid, upon which two letters were dispatched, one to the commander of the Manchester Yeomanry, the other to Colonel Lestrange, requiring them to come to the house where the magistrates were. The yeomanry, being nearest at hand, made their appearance first. They came from Moseley Street. These must have been the troops that were seen by Bamford as he was retiring from the ground with a friend to get some refreshment. And I stood on tiptoe, he says, and looked in the direction whence the noise proceeded, and saw a party of cavalry in blue and white uniform come trotting, sword in hand, round the corner of a garden wall, and to the front of a row of new houses, where they reined up in a line. This was in front of the house where the magistrates were. Mr. Hulton says that the troop came up at a quick pace, and that, the moment they appeared, the crowd set up a tremendous shout. The shout, as Bamford understood it, was one of good will. It appears that, when Hunt first saw the confusion, he exclaimed that it was some trick, meaning, perhaps, an attempt to frighten the meeting, and called to the people to be firm and to give three cheers, which was done. All parties agree that after the people had shouted, the yeomanry, who had now halted about three minutes, waved their swords and advanced. There are contradictory accounts of the pace at which they endeavoured to move forward, 
in point of fact they appear to have penetrated the dense crowd not in a body at all or in any kind of marching order but singly and separately of course they were soon brought to a stand this was the state in which things were when the two squadrons of hussars came up having made their way round by the west side of the field it was then says sir william jolliffe for the first time that i saw the manchester troop of yeomanry they were scattered singly or in small groups over the greater part of the field literally hemmed up and wedged into the mob so that they were powerless either to make an impression or to escape in fact they were in the power of those whom they were designed to overawe and it required only a glance to discover their helpless position and the necessity of our being brought to their rescue here then was the second device of the magistrates for the execution of the warrant utterly baffled their first notion was to entrust it to nadine the constable who told them that to execute it with the force at his command was impossible and now the troop of armed yeomen which was next tried and which had actually made the attempt was stuck fast and could neither advance nor retreat mr holton's own account is that at the moment when the hussars arrived he conceived the manchester yeomanry to be completely beaten when colonel lestrange he says asked him what he was to do he exclaimed good god sir do you not see how they are attacking the yeomanry disperse the crowd on this the word forward was instantly given the trumpet sounded and the cavalry dashed among the multitude their charge swept everything before it people yeomen and constables says sir william jolliffe in their confused attempts to escape ran one over the other so that by the time we had arrived at the end of the field the fugitives were literally piled up to a considerable elevation above the level of the ground as soon as he had given his orders to colonel lestrange mr holton tells us he left the window because he would rather not see any advance of the military the hussars generally sir william jolliffe states drove the people forward with the flats of their swords but sometimes he adds as is almost inevitably the case when men are placed in such situations the edge was used both by the hussars and as i have heard by the yeomen also but of this latter fact however i was not cognizant and believing though i do that nine out of ten of the sabre wounds were caused by the hussars i must still consider that it redounds highly to the humane forbearance of the men of the fifteenth that more wounds were not received when the vast numbers are taken into consideration with whom they were brought into hostile collision there can be no doubt however as he observes that the far greater amount of injuries arose from the pressure of the routed multitude the scene during the few minutes that it took to effect the dispersion must have been terrific in the extreme bamford who does not distinguish between the advance of the yeomanry and that of the hussars and whose situation did not allow him to do so has described it with perhaps a little rhetorical license in some particulars but with probably little exaggeration of the general effect stand fast he called out to those around him when he saw the troops starting forward they are riding upon us stand fast and there was a general cry in our quarter of stand fast the cavalry were in confusion they evidently could not with all the weight of man and horse penetrate that compact mass of human beings and their sabres were plied to hew away through naked held-up hands and defenceless heads 
and then chopped limbs and wound-gaping skulls were seen, and groans and cries were mingled with the din of that horrid confusion. Ah! Ah! For shame! For shame! was shouted. Then, Break! Break! They are killing them in front and they cannot get away! And there was a general cry of, Break! Break! Then there was a rush, heavy and resistless as a headlong sea, and a sound like low thunder, with screams, prayers and imprecations from the crowd moiled and sabre-doomed who could not escape. In ten minutes from the commencement of the havoc, the field was an open and almost deserted space. The sun looked down through a sultry and motionless air. The hustings remained, with a few broken and hewed flagstaves erect and a torn and gashed banner or two dropping, whilst over the whole field were strewed caps, bonnets, hats, shawls and shoes, and other parts of male and female dress, trampled, torn and bloody. Several mounds of human beings still remained where they had fallen, crushed down and smothered. Some of these still groaning, others with staring eyes were gasping for breath, and others would never breathe more. All was silent, save those low sounds, and the occasional snorting and pawing of steeds. Persons might sometimes be noticed peeping from attics, and over the tall ridgings of houses, but they quickly withdrew, as if fearful of being observed, or unable to sustain the full gaze of a scene so hideous and abhorrent. About thirty wounded persons were carried to the infirmary in the course of that afternoon and the following day, and about forty more were able to come themselves to have slighter injuries looked at and dressed. There were, no doubt, some cases besides that were not heard of. The greater number of the injuries were contusions or fractures. The cases of sabre wounds do not appear to have been more than twenty or thirty. Three or four persons were wounded on the evening of the fatal day by the fire of one of the regiments of foot, which was ordered to clear the streets where the people had reassembled in great numbers, and their conduct had begun to be threatening. Altogether, the number of lives lost appears to have been five or six, including one of the special constables, ridden over by the hussars, and one of the Manchester yeomen, struck off his horse by a brickbat, and who had his skull fractured either by the blow or the fall. Hunt and some eight or ten of his friends were seized by the first of the military who came up to the hustings. Francis Bruton We have abundant material to enable us to reconstruct the scene. Along part of the upper side of Windmill Street ran a row of houses. In front of these, on the slightly rising ground, stood a number of spectators, and the dense crowd reached from Windmill Street back towards the Friends' Meeting House on the north. Mount Street was bounded then on the east by a row of houses, reaching perhaps one-third of the way along the present Midland Hotel. The crowd did not reach right up to these houses, and there were stragglers in the intervening space. It was in this intervening space that the Manchester Yeomanry reined up later on as they arrived. Above the heads of the crowd, at intervals, could be seen the various banners and caps of liberty. Mr Hunt and the other speakers were standing on the simple hustings facing northwards. The magistrates were watching the proceedings from a window on the first floor of the house of Mr. Buxton in Mount Street. At the window of the room immediately above them stood the Reverend Edward Stanley, rector of Alderley, an unintentional but keenly observant spectator of every detail. At one of the windows of the adjoining house stood Mr. J. B. Smith, 
all around, in the side streets, but not visible from St. Peter's Fields, were posted the regular troops and the yeomanry, and mounted messengers for communication with them were in attendance at the magistrate's house. Among the representatives of the press were Mr. John Tyus for the London Times, Mr. Edward Baines for the Leeds Mercury, and Mr. John Smith for the Liverpool Mercury. Purely as a guess, we should be inclined to conjecture that the last of the three may have been the author of the anonymous, impartial narrative. The magistrates had at length come to a decision of some kind. If a few of the inhabitants of the town would put their names to a statement to the effect that they considered that the town was endangered by the meeting, that would justify them in arresting the leaders. Accordingly, Richard Owen and some thirty others, including Mr. Phillips, signed the necessary affidavit, and a warrant in accordance with it was drawn up, stating that Richard Owen had made oath that Henry Hunt and others had arrived in a car at the area near St. Peter's Church, that an immense mob had assembled, and that he considered the town in danger. Referring to this strange mode of procedure afterwards, Sir Francis Burdett said, If arrests are to follow opinions which may find a place in other men's heads, there is an end to liberty. However weak their action may appear to us today, it was on this ground that Nadin, the deputy constable, was instructed by the magistrates to go and interrupt a great peaceful meeting by arresting the leaders. Nadin assured them that even with the hundreds of special constables at his disposal, he could not carry out the arrests without the assistance of the military. Hunt had only been speaking for a minute or two, therefore, when riders were dispatched for the troops. It is difficult to understand why a single message was not sent to Lieutenant Colonel Lestrange, who was in command of the whole force. By a strange fatality, the magistrates, at the same instant that they sent for Colonel Lestrange, dispatched a horseman to Pickford's Yard for the troop of Manchester Yeomanry concealed there, which they had chosen to retain under their own control. The message, which was produced at the trial, was as follows. To the commanding officer, Portland Street, Sir, as chairman of the select committee of magistrates, I request you to proceed immediately to number 6 Mount Street, where the magistrates are assembled, they conceive the civil power wholly inadequate to preserve the peace. I have the honour, etc. William Holton. At the moment that this letter was sent, Mr. Hunt was, in an orderly manner, addressing a perfectly peaceful meeting of some 60,000 men, women and children. Judging from what followed, Colonel Lestrange seems to have made a skilful disposition of the forces at his disposal, closing in the infantry on the square from several points, while he himself led the Hussars and the Cheshire Yeomanry by a rather circuitous route, viz. along Deansgate as far as Fleet Street, a street which then ran parallel to Great Bridgewater Street, on the site of the present central station, then along Fleet Street and so up Lower Mosley Street, where the artillery were posted to Windmill Street. Meanwhile, the troop of Manchester Yeomanry stationed in Pickford's Yard had lost no time in obeying their summons, and not having so far to go, they were easily first on the spot. They came along Nicholas Street and down Cooper Street. As they advanced along this street, at a tolerably brisk pace, a woman carrying her two-year-old child in her arms watched them pass and then attempted to cross the street. Just at that moment, one of the yeomanry who had been kept behind came past at a hand-gallop. The woman was knocked down and stunned. The child was thrown several yards, fell on its head and was killed. This was the first casualty. The sworn affidavits to this incident may be read in the Hunt Memorial Papers at the Manchester Reform Club. We shall see in a moment that a woman was involved in the second casualty also. 
The whole fortune of the day turned on what happened in the few minutes that followed. It must be remembered that the troop of Manchester yeomanry that arrived on the scene first was a local levy formed not long before for the purpose of aiding the civil power, and consisted largely of local tradesmen who seemed to have been stung by the taunts levelled at them by the labouring classes whom they were intended to intimidate. There is no doubt that their horses were not under control, and that they were therefore not qualified for the difficult task before them. A mere handful of trained mounted troops, properly directed, can, by feints, by backing, by rearing, and by skilful manoeuvres, break up and move a large crowd without injury to any one. All parties are agreed that the yeomanry halted in disorder. Even Hunt noticed that and remarked upon it, though he was a hundred yards away. On this point we have the clear testimony of the chairman of the magistrates, Mr. Holton, who, in his evidence at the trial, said that their horses being raw and unused to the field, they appeared to him to be in a certain degree of confusion. Mr. Stanley again says, They halted in great disorder, and so continued for the few minutes they remained. This disorder was attributed by several persons in the room to the undisciplined state of their horses. Little accustomed to act together, and probably frightened by the shout of the populace which greeted their arrival. It is impossible to avoid asking whether the whole story might not have been a different one, if these undisciplined, irregular troops had been held back, and the 15th Hussars, men who were wearing their Waterloo medals, won only four years before, had been employed instead. For be it remembered that up to this point the magistrates had no intention of using troops to disperse the meeting. That was emphatically stated by Mr. Holton at the trial. Their decision was to arrest the leaders, and they seemed to have anticipated that when that was done, the meeting would disperse of itself, as had happened under exactly similar circumstances at the meeting of Blanketeers. As it was, the yeomanry wheeled, and, accompanied by the deputy constable, rode through the crowd towards the hustings. Stanley marks them on his plan as starting from a point apparently not far from the entrance to the present Association Hall in Mount Street, and riding, as his arrows show, straight for the platform. As they did so, they left something behind them on the ground. It was the body of a woman. Stanley marks the exact spot where this body lay, apparently lifeless, through the subsequent proceedings, after which it was carried into the house. This was the second casualty. The yeomanry entered the crowd to the right of the cordon of special constables, but one of the special constables was killed also. Stanley's account is as follows. And then Hunt began his address. I could distinctly hear his voice, but was too distant to distinguish his words. He had not spoken above a minute or two, before I heard a report in the room that the cavalry was sent for. The messengers, we were told, might be seen from a back window. I ran to that window, from which I could see the road leading to a timber yard, I believe, at no great distance where, as I entered the town, I had observed the Manchester Yeomanry stationed. I saw three horsemen ride off, one towards the timber yard, the others in the direction which I knew led to the cantonments of other cavalry. I immediately returned to the front window, anxiously awaiting the result. A slight commotion among the body of spectators, chiefly women, who occupied a mound of raised, broken ground on the left and to the rear of the orators. The references to Windmill Street. Stanley admitted at the trial that he had not heard the name, 
convinced me they saw something which excited their fears. Many jumped down, and they soon dispersed more rapidly. By this time the alarm was quickly spreading, and I heard several voices exclaiming, The soldiers! The soldiers! It is possible that this alarm may have been due to a skilful movement of the infantry in Dickinson Street on the other side of the square, which seems to have taken place at this moment. A witness at the Oldham inquest speaks of a movement of the people near Windmill Hill. I saw the 88th formed into line and supposed the movement on the windmill occasioned by the junction of the 88th. The regiment formed into a sort of crescent which prevented me from moving either way. I could not get away by any exertion. The regiment prevented persons getting either way. This is an excellent illustration of the manner in which troops skilfully handled can be used to baffle and break up a crowd. We return to Stanley's narrative. Another moment brought the cavalry into the field on a gallop, which they continued till the word was given for halting them. They halted in great disorder, and so continued for the few minutes they remained on that spot. Hunt had evidently seen their approach. His hand had been pointed towards them, and it was clear from his gestures that he was addressing the mob respecting their interference. As a matter of fact, Hunt's words, which Stanley could not hear, were, Stand firm, my friends. You see, they are in disorder already. This is a trick. Give them three cheers. Bamford also shouted, Stand fast. They are riding upon us. Stand fast. We are reminded involuntarily of Shelley's lines, written so far away, yet with such striking intuition. Let the horsemen's scimitars wheel and flash like spheless stars. Thirsting to eclipse their burning in a sea of death and mourning. Stand ye calm and resolute, like a forest close and mute, with folded arms and looks which are weapons of unvanquished war. Stanley continues, Hunt's words, whatever they were, excited a shout from those immediately about him, which was re-echoed with fearful animation by the rest of the multitude. Ere that had subsided, the cavalry, the loyal spectators, and the special constables cheered loudly in return, and a pause ensued of about a minute or two. An officer and some few others then advanced rather in front of the troop, formed, as I before said, in much disorder and with scarcely the semblance of line. Their sabres glistened in the air, and on they went, direct for the hustings. At first, i.e. for a very few paces, their movement was not rapid, and there was some show of an attempt to follow their officer in regular succession, five or six abreast. But as Mr. Francis Phillips in his pamphlet observes, they soon increased their speed, and with a zeal and ardour which might naturally be expected from men acting with delegated power against a foe by whom it is understood they had long been insulted with taunts of cowardice, continued their course, seeming individually to vie with each other, which should be first. As the cavalry approached the dense mass of people, they used their utmost efforts to escape. But so closely were they pressed in opposite directions by the soldiers, the special constables, the position of the hustings, and their own immense numbers, that immediate escape was impossible. 
The rapid course of the troop was of course impeded when it came in contact with the mob, but a passage was forced in less than a minute. So rapid indeed was it that the guard of constables close to the hustings shared the fate of the rest. On their arrival at the hustings a scene of dreadful confusion ensued. The orators fell or were forced off the scaffold in quick succession. Fortunately for them, the stage being rather elevated, they were in great degree beyond the reach of the many swords which gleamed around them. In a footnote, Stanley adds, From the moment they began to force their way through the crowd towards the hustings, swords were up and swords were down. But whether they fell with the sharp or flat side, of course, I cannot pretend to give an opinion. Lieutenant Jolliffe decides this point for us when he says, The hussars drove the people forward with the flats of their swords. But sometimes, as is almost inevitably the case, when men are placed in such situations, the edge was used, both by the hussars and by the yeomanry. What actually happened at the hustings we know from the account given in the London Times by Tyus, who was present, and was himself taken into custody. The officer who commanded the detachment, says the Times, went up to Mr. Hunt, and said, brandishing his sword, Sir, I have a warrant against you, and arrest you as my prisoner. Mr. Hunt, after exhorting the people to tranquillity in a few words, turned round to the officer and said, I willingly surrender myself to any civil officer who will show me his warrant. Nadine, the police officer, then came forward and said, I will arrest you. I have got information upon oath against you. The same formality was gone through with Mr. Johnson. Mr. Hunt and Mr. Johnson then leaped from the wagon and surrendered themselves to the civil power. Stanley, who was a hundred yards away, says, Hunt fell or threw himself amongst the constables and was driven or dragged as fast as possible down the avenue which communicated with the magistrate's house. His associates were hurried after him in a similar manner. By this time so much dust had arisen that no accurate account can be given of what further took place at that particular spot. The square was now covered with the flying multitude, though still in parts the banners and caps of liberty were surrounded by groups. All this was the work of a few minutes, and meanwhile the other troops had had time to arrive. Before we follow these into the crowd, it is right that we should listen to three other accounts of the charge of the yeomanry. The cavalry were in confusion, says Bamford. They evidently could not, with all the weight of man and horse, penetrate that compact mass of human beings, and their sabres were plied to hew away through naked, held-up hands and defenceless heads, and then chopped limbs and wound-gaping skulls were seen and groans and cries were mingled with the din of that horrid confusion. Ah! Ah! For shame! For shame! was shouted. Then, Break! Break! They are killing them in front and they cannot get away! And there was a general cry of, Break! Break! For a moment the crowd held back as in a pause. Then there was a rush, heavy and resistless as a headlong sea, and a sound like low thunder, with screams, prayers and imprecations from the crowd-moiled and sabre-doomed who could not escape. Bamford here does not distinguish between the charge of the Manchester Yeomanry and the charge of the Hussars, which followed a few minutes later. It was the latter that caused the rush of which he speaks. Though he was a man of five foot ten and stood on tiptoe, as he tells us, he could not, being in the crowd, see everything. 
Stanley says emphatically. No spectator on the ground could possibly form a just and correct idea of what was passing. He cites this as one explanation of the varying accounts and contradictory statements. Hunt, who had himself ridden in the Wiltshire Yeomanry, thus describes the charge in his memoirs. Before the cheering was sufficiently ended to enable me to raise my voice again, the word was given, and from the left flank of the troops, the trumpeter leading the way, they charged among the people, sabring right and left in all directions, sparing neither age, sex, nor rank. In this manner they cut their way up to the hustings, riding over and sabring all that could not get out of their way. Finally, let us hear the officer speak who led the charge in person. At the Royal Birthday Festivities in Manchester on the 29th of April, 1820, Colonel Hugh Burley, in replying to the toast of the Manchester and Salford Yeomanry, made a lengthy speech in which he complained bitterly of the obloquy and outcry levelled against them, which we should have been more or less than men not to feel. Speaking of the charge into the crowd, he said, I observed as I approached the stage a movement in the crowd about the spot from which all accounts agree in stating that the first attack was made upon the yeomanry. That movement appeared to be intended to throw an obstacle in the way of our advance. Up to that moment the Reeve had walked by my side, but I then quickened my pace in order to prevent an interruption. There was ample space for a front of six men wherever we passed, but I am assured by those who formed the first rank of six that they were obliged to break off into single file before they reached the stage. The mob must therefore have closed in immediately behind the officers who led the squadron. He goes on to speak of the yeomanry's dash for the flags, which is mentioned below. He does not attempt to deny that it took place, but there is no object in quoting further from an apologia which at the best is a very lame affair. The arrival of the other troops is thus described in the Manchester Chronicle. Immediately the Cheshire Yeomanry galloped on the ground, to them succeeded the 15th Hussars and the Royal Artillery Train, while all the various detachments of infantry also advanced. Stanley has this footnote on the infantry. On quitting the ground, I for the first time observed that strong bodies of infantry were posted in the street on opposite sides of the square. Their appearance might probably have increased the alarm, and would certainly have impeded the progress of a mob wishing to retreat in either of those directions. When I saw them they were resting on their arms, and I believe they remained stationary, taking no part in the transaction. In his plan Stanley shows the Cheshire Yeomanry halting between Windmill Street and the Hustings, and the 15th Hussars halting in front of Mount Street, about opposite to the present Midland Buffet. He says, The Manchester Yeomanry had already taken possession of the Hustings, when the Cheshire Yeomanry entered on my left in excellent order, and formed in the rear of the Hustings as well as could be expected, considering the crowds who were now pressing in all directions, and filling up the space hitherto partially occupied. The 15th Dragoons appeared nearly at the same moment, and paused, rather than halted, on our left, parallel to the row of houses. We have now arrived at the most dramatic moment in the whole story, and it may be well to review the situation before coming to the fateful decision which completed the tragedy. One troop of the Manchester and Salford Yeomanry, perhaps consisting of fifty or sixty men, was now practically enveloped in the huge crowd. 
So serious did Mr. Hulton consider their case to be that he stated at the trial that he saw what appeared to be a general resistance. The Manchester Yeomanry he conceived to be completely defeated. His idea of their danger arose from his seeing sticks flourished in the air as well as brickbats thrown about. We have also, however, the testimony of an officer of regulars as to the situation. Lieutenant Sir W. Jolliffe, who afterwards charged the crowd with the hussars, says, The Manchester Yeomanry were scattered in small groups over the greater part of the field, literally hemmed up and wedged into the mob, so that they were powerless either to make an impression or to escape. In fact, they were in the power of those whom they were designed to overawe and it required only a glance to discover their helpless position and the necessity of our being brought to the rescue. There are two points on which the evidence is hopelessly conflicting. The first is the question of the use of missiles by the crowd. There is no method of discussing the question except that of quoting the various testimonies. Mr. Hulton stated that his reason for thinking the yeomanry in danger was that he saw sticks flourished in the air and brickbats thrown about, and that he saw what appeared to be a general resistance. He afterwards said at the trial, I have not stated that bricks and stones were levelled at the yeomanry, and I can't swear it. They were thrown in defiance of the military. Mr. Stanley, on the other hand, says, I saw nothing that gave me an idea of resistance, except in one or two spots where they showed some disinclination to abandon the banners. These impulses, however, were but momentary. Their sticks were, as far as came under my observation, common walking sticks. I have heard from the most respectable authority that the cavalry were assailed by stones during the short time they halted previous to their charge. I do not wish to contradict positive assertions. What a person sees must be true. My evidence on that point can only be negative. I certainly saw nothing of the sort and yet my eyes were fixed most steadily upon them, and I think that I must have seen any stone larger than a pebble at the short distance at which I stood, from thirty to fifty yards, and the commanding view I had. I indeed saw no missile weapons used throughout the whole transaction, but as I have before stated, the dust at the hustings soon partially obscured everything that took place near that particular spot but no doubt the people defended themselves to the best of their power, as it was absolutely impossible for them to get away and give the cavalry a clear passage till the outer part of the mob had fallen back. Bamford admits that when a number of Middleton people, who were pressed by the yeomanry, retreated to the timber lying in front of the friend's meeting-house, a number sprung over the balks and defended themselves with stones which they found there. And he tells of a young married woman who defended herself here for some time, and at length, being herself wounded, through a fragment of a brick, with the result that one of the yeomanry was unhorsed and dangerously wounded. This incident is confirmed by the report in the Chronicle, which runs, Another yeomanry man was unhorsed at the same moment, and his life with difficulty saved. This was near the Quaker's meeting-house, where a furious battle raged. The same paper mentions, Large stones, at the trials it was stated in defence of the magistrates that previous to the meeting the town surveyor had carefully cleared the ground of all stones, but that after it was over a cartload of stones and bricks was picked up. Mr. Tyus, the reporter for the Times, says emphatically that when the yeomanry rode into the crowd not a brickbat was thrown at them, not a pistol was fired, 
During this period all was quiet and orderly, as if the cavalry had been the friends of the multitude and had marched as such into the midst of them. As soon as Hans and Johnson had jumped from the wagon, a cry was made by the cavalry, Have at their flags! In consequence they immediately dashed, not only at the flags that were in the wagon, but those which were posted among the crowd, cutting most indiscriminately to the right and left in order to get at them. This set the people running in all directions, and it was not until this act had been committed that any brickbats were hurled at the military. From that moment the Manchester Yeomanry lost all command of their temper. One of those who held on to his banner till it was struck from his hand, and his shoulder was divided by one of the Manchester Yeomanry, whom he recognised, was the Middleton journeyman, Thomas Redford. Three years later, in 1822, this man sued members of the Manchester Yeomanry for assault at a famous trial which took place at Lancaster. After the lapse of a century, perhaps we may, while trying to take an impartial view, agree with what Mr. Hobhouse said on this subject in the House of Commons in May 1821, in supporting Sir Francis Burdett's motion for an inquiry. He defied proof that the people began it. When once they were attacked, what could you expect? Were people in the quiet exercise of one of their most undoubted privileges to be unresistingly bayoneted, sabred, trampled underfoot, without raising a hand, or, if the noble lord would allow, without putting their hands in their pockets for the stones they had brought with them? The Reverend Mr. Stanley, who watched the proceedings from a room above the magistrates, saw no stones or sticks used. The mention of pockets is a reference to a report that some of the crowd wore smocks with large pockets, in which they brought stones to the meeting. The second question that gave rise to much discussion at the trials and elsewhere was whether the riot act was read before the second body of troops was directed to charge the crowd. It was emphatically stated at the trial that the act was read distinctly twice, once from the magistrate's window. Mr. Stanley, who stood at the window immediately above the magistrates, was closely questioned on this point at the trial in 1822. He said, I neither heard it read nor saw it read. Similar testimony was given by Mr. McKennell, who stood on the steps of Mr. Buxton's house throughout the proceedings. Further discussion of this point is unnecessary, because it seems to be fairly generally admitted that if the Riot Act was read, as it may well have been in a perfunctory way, no one whom it concerned had any knowledge of the fact and supposing again that it was read, the time that elapsed between the reading of the Act and the charge of the troops was much less than that prescribed by the Act itself. We now return to the scene in St. Peter's Fields at the moment when the new troops arrived. Lieutenant Colonel Lestrange, who was in command of the whole, and who had come round into Windmill Street with the 15th Hussars and the Cheshire Yeomanry, halted both, rode up to the house where the magistrates were assembled, and looking up at the window at which Mr. Holton, their chairman, was standing, said, "'What am I to do?' Holton admitted afterwards at the trial that he did not consult his brother magistrates before replying. "'There was not time,' he said, "'for me to consult my brother magistrates as to sending in more military. But they were with me at the window, and I should certainly conceive they heard me. I did not take the responsibility on myself.' They, at that moment, were expressing fear themselves. Mr. Holton's fateful reply to Lieutenant Colonel Lestrange, he repeated it over and over again at the trials, was as follows. Good God, sir, don't you see? They're attacking the yeomanry. Disperse the meeting. The scene that followed these words was one that sent a thrill of horror through the whole country. 
The report of it reached the poet Shelley in Italy, and he says, As I lay asleep in Italy, there came a voice from over the sea, and with great power it forth led me to walk in the visions of poesy, and he wrote his Mask of Anarchy. Within ten minutes from the time those words were uttered, those who looked down on St. Peter's fields saw an open space, strewn with human beings, some dead, many wounded, numbers of them heaped one upon the other, and a group of horsemen loosening their saddle girths, arranging their accoutrements, and wiping their sabres, while all round there was a flying multitude, escaping by the side streets, which were guarded by infantry, defending themselves among the timber lying near the friend's meeting-house, and eventually making their way to the open country, through which they had marched a few hours before, with bands playing, banners flying, and girls dancing and singing, with an exultant feeling of hope that at last something was to be done for their suffering humanity. We have many pictures of the scene. Stanley says, the 15th Dragoons pressed forward, crossing the avenue of constables, which opened to let them through, and bent their course towards the Manchester Yeomanry. The people were now in a state of utter rout and confusion, leaving the ground strewed with hats and shoes, and hundreds were thrown down in the attempt to escape. The cavalry were hurrying about in all directions, completing the work of dispersion, which, to use the words given in Wheeler's Manchester Chronicle, referred to by Mr. Francis Phillips, was effected in so short a space of time as to appear as if done by magic. During the whole of this confusion, heightened at its close by the rattle of some artillery crossing the square, shrieks were heard in all directions, and as soon as the crowd of people dispersed, the effects of the conflict became visible. Some were seen bleeding on the ground, unable to rise. Others, less seriously injured, but faint with the loss of blood, were retiring slowly, or leaning upon others for support. The whole of this extraordinary scene was the work of a few minutes. Bamford speaks of several mounds of human beings, where they had fallen, crushed down and smothered. This is fully corroborated by Sir W. Jolliffe, the lieutenant of the Hussars, already quoted, who says, People, yeomen and constables, in their confused attempts to escape, ran one over the other, so that by the time we had arrived at the end of the field, the fugitives were literally piled up to a considerable elevation above the level of the field. Wheeler's Manchester Chronicle, the principal Tory organ, had the following description on the Saturday following the event. A scene of confusion and terror now existed which defies description. The multitude pressed one another down, and in many places they lay in masses, piled body upon body. The cries and mingled shouts with the galloping of the horses were shocking. Many of the most respectable gentlemen of the town were thrown down, ridden over and trampled upon. One special constable was killed on the spot, another was borne home dreadfully hurt. The whole of this serious affray lasted not many minutes. The ground was cleared as if by magic. Bamford's account runs, On the breaking of the crowd, the yeomanry wheeled, and, dashing whenever there was an opening, they followed, pressing and wounding. Many females appeared as the crowd opened, and striplings or mere youths also were found. Mr. J. B. Smith's report of what he saw from the window in Mount Street corresponds. 
Exactly how, we may be inclined to ask, was the charge of the hussars made? Lieutenant Jolliffe, who took part in it, shall answer the question. We must premise, however, that he has his cardinal points wrong. For southwest we must read southeast, and for south we must read east. There is no doubt that the hussars lined up in Mount Street, and swept the square from Mount Street to Deansgate. This is clear, not only from Stanley's plan, but also from Jolliffe's own statement that his troopers found themselves in Byram Street after crossing the square. He writes, Someone who had been sent from the place of meeting to bring us led the way through a number of narrow streets by a circuitous route to what I will call the south-west corner of St. Peter's Fields. We advanced along the south side of this space of ground without a halt or pause even. The words front and forward were given, and the trumpet sounded the charge, at the very moment the threes wheeled up. When fronted, our line extended quite across the ground, which in all parts was so filled with people that their hats seemed to touch. When the square was cleared, Lieutenant Jolliffe was sent by his commander to find a trumpeter, in order that he might sound the rally, or retreat. This sent me down the street I had first been in, i.e. Byram Street, or possibly St. John Street, after the pursuing men of my troop. There are four other points touched upon in Lieutenant Jolliffe's narrative, which should not be omitted if the story is to be complete. We have already mentioned the loose balks of timber that lay scattered about to the south of the Friends' meeting-house. These timber-trees, as he calls them, could not be distinguished when the mob covered them, and they caused bad falls to one officer's horse, and to many of the troopers of the hussars. Jolliffe himself went to the assistant of a private of the regiment whose horse had fallen over a piece of timber nearly in the middle of the square, and who was most seriously injured. Lieutenant Jolliffe's account of the fight near the friend's meeting-house, also mentioned above, runs thus. The mob had taken possession of various buildings, particularly of a Quaker's chapel and burial ground enclosed with a wall. This they occupied for some little time, and in attempting to displace them some of the men and horses were struck with stones and brickbats. Seeing a sort of fighting going on, I went in that direction. At the very moment I reached the Quaker's meeting-house I saw a farrier of the 15th ride at a small door in the outer wall, and to my surprise his horse struck it with such force that it flew open. Two or three hussars then rode in, and the place was immediately in their possession. The statement in the Chronicle on the following Saturday to the effect that one of the yeomanry leaped his horse over the wall after a reformer would seem to be apocryphal, as the plan produced at the trial showed that there was a drop of ten feet on one side. I have to thank the authorities who have charge of the archives at the Friends' meeting-house for their courtesy in acceding to my request that the records and minutes books for August 1819 should be examined. They could find no mention whatever of Peterloo. Lieutenant Jolliffe also clears up the following reference in Stanley's account. Stanley says, I saw no firearms, but distinctly heard four or five shots towards the close of the business, on the opposite side of the square beyond the hustings, but nobody could inform me by whom they were fired. Jolliffe tells of a pistol fired from a window, and a footnote by Captain Smith of the Cheshire Yeomanry refers to some men on the roof of a house with a gun. The 88th fired a shot or two over the roof and cleared the spot. 
Lastly, the question arises, what use was made of the Cheshire Yeomanry when they arrived in St. Peter's Fields? Stanley, who shows them halting between the Hustings and Windmill Street, adds this note to his plan. My attention was so much taken up with the proceedings of the Manchester Yeomanry, etc., and the dispersion in front of the Hustings, that I cannot speak accurately as to their subsequent movements. It is clear that they cannot have charged the crowd from that point. They would have been riding at right angles to the charge of the Hussars. The centenary volume of the Cheshire Yeomanry throws no light on the matter. The most detailed contemporary plan shows yeomanry and foot soldiers at different points intercepting and cutting at fugitives. Lieutenant Jolliffe, speaking of the Cheshire Yeomanry and the 31st Infantry, says, The whole remained formed up till our squadrons had fallen in again. Captain Smith, who led one of the troops of the Cheshire Yeomanry, says, in a footnote to Jolliffe's account, The yeomanry and infantry stationed at the four corners opened to allow the multitude to escape. We are therefore driven to the conclusion that Lestrange held the Cheshire Yeomanry in reserve while the Hussars made their charge. We have at least two testimonies as to the appearance of the fugitives as they streamed into the open country. Mr Prentice had left the crowd to go to his home in Salford, just as Hunt had mounted the hustings. I had not been at home more than a quarter of an hour, he says, when a wailing sound was heard from the main street, and rushing out I saw people running in the direction of Pendleton their faces pale as death, and some with blood trickling down their cheeks. It was with difficulty I could get anyone to stop and tell me what had happened. The unarmed multitude, men, women and children, had been attacked, with murderous results by the military. Mr. William Royal, in his History of Rushholm, published in 1914, says, I remember my father telling me on that day of the Peterloo Massacre in 1819, he was standing at the corner of Norman Road and saw crowds of people coming from Manchester, many with marks of blood upon them, received in that murderous affray. Meanwhile Hunt, who was brutally maltreated after his arrest, had been hurried with the other prisoners to the New Bailey in Salford. The military and special constables patrolled the streets. Apparently the temper of the crowd had been roused to a dangerous pitch. Stanley, who praises the quiet demeanour of the people before the event, says... I found them in a very different state of feeling. I heard repeated vows of revenge. You took us unprepared. We were unarmed today, and it is your day. But when we meet again, the day shall be ours. Bamford, who led the remnant of his contingent into Middleton with a band and one remaining banner, corroborates this. All the working people of Manchester, I found, were athirst for revenge. The Middleton folk, brooding over a spirit of vengeance towards the authors of our humiliation and our wrong. The centre of disorder seems to have been at New Cross. The riot act was read at this place between seven and eight, and a number of people were wounded, one fatally, by shots from the military. But in these days of hospitals and Red Cross societies, our thoughts inevitably follow the wounded as they made their way painfully homewards. Thousands of those at the meeting had come from as far as Bury and had to walk back. The committee that was afterwards formed for their relief drew up a list of authenticated cases from which it appears that we may safely say that eleven were killed and between five and six hundred more or less seriously injured. The subscriptions to the relief fund amounted to over three thousand pounds. 
As examples, let us follow two of the wounded to their homes on the fateful 16th of August. It was a clean gash of about six inches in length, says Bamford, in speaking of Redford's wound, and quite through the shoulder blade. Found Redford's mother bathing it. She yearned and wept afresh when she saw the severed bone gaping in the wound. She asked who did it, and Tom mentioned a person. He said he knew him well, and she, sobbing, said she also knew him, and his father and mother before him. There is another point to remember. Reliable authorities assure us that in many cases the wounded dare not apply for proper treatment for fear of losing employment by being branded as reformers. We have already mentioned that Redford's case was the subject of a test trial three years later when he sued the yeomanry for unlawful cutting and wounding. But the jury found for the defendants in a few minutes. The other case, a much more painful one, and yet one that must be typical of many, was that of an Oldham youth named John Lees, who had fought at Waterloo, who came home with external and internal injuries to which he succumbed after the most excruciating suffering. Those who wish may read all the harrowing details of this most painful case in the report of the inquest, which, after dragging on for a number of months, was eventually quashed by a legal quibble. As he rode back across the square, Lieutenant Jolliffe had noticed, lying here and there, the unfortunates who were too much injured to move away, and the sight was rendered more distressing by observing some women among the sufferers. On the following afternoon, he visited the infirmary in company with some military medical officers. I saw there from twelve to twenty cases of sabre wounds, and among these two women who appeared not likely to recover. One man was in a dying state from a gunshot wound in the head, another had had his leg amputated. Both these casualties arose from the firing of the 88th the night before. Two or three were reported dead, one of them a constable killed in St. Peter's Fields, but I saw none of the bodies. It was not till half-past ten on Wednesday morning that the Prince Regent's Cheshire Yeomanry, in their blue jackets with silver braid ornament, scarlet cuffs and collar, and plated buttons, having spent one night patrolling the town, and another lying at their horses' heads in St. Peter's Fields, mounted and rode away home, where they were warmly welcomed. Many of them had made their wills before they had set out for Manchester two days earlier, with serious misgivings. In the days to come, most would agree that a tragedy had occurred on St. Peter's Field, whoever might be to blame. However, a hastily penned letter from Major Thomas Dinley, commander of the two artillery pieces in Lower Mosley Street, bears witness to the mood of the authorities as the dust settled on St. Peter's Field. Dear Sir, the first action of the Battle of Manchester is over, and has, I am happy to say, ended in the complete discomfiture of the enemy. Hunt made his appearance about half-twelve in his carriage, accompanied by three male insides, and a very good-looking female, Mrs. Johnson, upon the box, bearing a very fine silk flag, about three thousand rabble, with a band of music, several, perhaps six colours, one cap of liberty, etc., etc. They arrived at the hustings about one o'clock. In less than a quarter of an hour, the magistracy thought it right to take Hunt into custody. This, the mob— attempted to resist. The military were at hand and rushed upon them, and there was the devil to pay. The number that were rowed over might have been very great. I don't know that any of them were killed. I saw several carried very badly wounded to the hospital, 
I am sorry to say one of the Manchester cavalry was shot dead, and two or three of the constables very badly wounded. One of the fifteenth hussars had his arm broken and badly cut on the head. We have taken Hunt, Johnston, and three or four of their sort, with two reform ladies, and lodged them in the new bailey. The whole business was settled in five minutes. I was at a short distance from the ground, and brought the guns up at a gallop. But the business was nearly settled by that time, and I had the pleasure of seeing Hunt, etc., secured and sent off. The colours and cap of liberty in the hands of our troops, the hustings torn to pieces, and I must not say the pleasure of seeing the field of battle covered with hats, sticks, shoes, laurel branches, drumheads, etc., etc. In short, the field was as complete as I had ever seen one after an action. The mob fired some shots about eight or nine, from the tops of the houses and out of the windows, which were returned by our skirmishing infantry. We remained in full possession of our ground about one and a half hours, and then moved through the town to the barracks. I was very much amused to see the way in which the volunteer cavalry knocked the people about during the whole time we remained upon the ground. The instant they saw ten or a dozen mobites together, they rode at them and leathered them properly. We are not by any means quiet. Squadron is this moment ordered down, but I don't know that it is anything more than precautions, and we remain harnessed, ready to turn out at a moment's notice. I think I have now told you all that I know. I hope you are able to read what I have written, but I am sure you would excuse it all, could you see the hurried way on which I am writing. Believe me, etc. So, God bless Henry Hunt, me boys, with Henry Hunt will go. We'll mount the cap of liberty in spite of Nady Joe.